This episode of Gather and Go is brought to you by Visit Savannah. Give your guests the opportunity to fall in love with Savannah, Georgia's hidden gems, coastal cuisines, exquisitely preserved history, and unique activities for groups of all sizes. Learn more at visitsavannah.com. Well, hey there, everybody. Welcome to Gather and Go, the podcast that helps you plan, promote, and lead better trips. I am Brian Jewell. I am your host, and I am happy as a clam today that you decided to spend some of your time with us. And hey, speaking of clams, I hope you brought your appetite because today we have a featured conversation with Eric Wolf who is the founder of the World Food Travel Association. Eric and I are gonna talk all about food and travel and how you can make food and authentic culinary experiences part of your group travel programs. You will not wanna miss this featured conversation. But before we get there, I've got a lot of other interesting things to share with you. First off is some travel news you may have missed, this time coming out of Israel. It appears that air travel to the Holy Land is surging. Airline Weekly reporting this week that air travel from the U.S. to Israel in July was up 4.5% over the same period in 2019. Now, why are we talking about 2019? Well, as you know, 2019 was the last quote-unquote normal year before the pandemic. And 2019 was also a record year for Israel with a total of 4.6 million visitors. Now, obviously, that number cratered during the pandemic in 2020 and 2021. Those numbers went way down. So the fact that in July of 2022, we saw a 4.5% increase over July of 2019 tells us that travel to Israel is back in a big way. Now, uh, as you can imagine, this probably represents a lot of the pent-up demand that people have been talking about. And I think it is especially relevant in Israel, in the Holy Land, because many people consider this a quote-unquote once-in-a-lifetime kind of destination. So if you have been um, dreaming of going to a place like Israel and then uh, all of a sudden uh, that dream gets shut down because of a pandemic, well, uh, you might be eager to head back as soon as you're able to go. And I think that's a lot of what we're seeing with this travel to Israel. Also worth noting here is that Israel opened its borders to all tourists, regardless of vaccination status, at the beginning of March. So if you look at the timeline, well, it makes sense. People hear the news in March that Israel is open again. They begin booking trips and uh, you end up with a summer of record air travel to Israel. Now, as a result of this, uh, U.S.-based airlines are adding a lot more flights to Israel. Uh, American Airlines, which didn't fly to Israel at all before the beginning of the pandemic, is now offering service to Tel Aviv from both Miami and New York. Uh, Delta is adding service from Atlanta. That's in addition to existing routes to Tel Aviv from New York JFK and from Boston. And United, which uh, already offered flights to Israel from four different cities in the U.S., is planning to add more flights from its hub in Chicago O'Hare. So if you are interested in traveling to Israel or certainly interested in taking a group, you may have more options than you ever have when it comes to booking your air travel. You might also find that the destination is more popular than it has ever been. So if you have travelers who may be interested in traveling to Israel, this might be the time to start putting that trip together and capitalizing on that pent up demand. 
Now that's travel news you may have missed. Next is our road tip segment. You know, every episode we like to bring you a little nugget of wisdom from our time on the road. And uh, since we were just talking about international travel, I thought it would be worthwhile to talk about how to keep your money and valuables safe when you're traveling, especially traveling abroad. Uh, When you travel in the US, you may not need to carry much cash at all. I, I usually honestly only have my credit cards with me when I travel in the US. When I go abroad though, I do find it helpful to have some cash uh, in addition to my credit cards and things like that. So uh, the tip for today is this. When you are going abroad, and especially, especially if you are checking luggage anywhere, I want you to split up your valuables and your cash and not keep them all in one place. Okay, so think about this scenario. If you have a wallet or a purse and you're used to keeping all your cash and all your credit cards in that one place, and you lose that wallet or you lose that purse or god forbid it is stolen or something happens to it you're going to find yourself in a foreign country with no money no resources that's not a situation you want to be in on the other hand if you had some of your cash let's say hidden somewhere in your carry-on luggage a little bit more cash hidden somewhere in your checked luggage certainly some that you're carrying in your purse or in your pocket do the same with your credit cards If that piece of luggage uh, is stolen, if it goes missing, if it doesn't make the connection, if you lose your wallet, if something happens to your purse, you still have some resources on you and it doesn't ruin your trip. It's just a little bit of a headache and a little bit of a hassle. That is your road tip for today. Next up, I want to share a little bit of news from us. You know, we publish a variety of print travel magazines here at the Group Travel Leader, and I love print magazines. I always have. But one of the things that can be a little bit frustrating about print is that it is very finite and the amount of space we have in any given issue can be rather limited. And every now and then we have great content that we have prepared for an issue of the magazine that our professional travel writers have worked hard on researching and writing up for you. And then when push comes to shove, when we're about ready to go to print, I have to cut that content out of the magazine. It hurts. We hate to do it, but it leaves us with these articles that are all ready to go and you don't get to see in the magazine. But there is a way for you to catch that great content that doesn't make it into print. And that is by signing up for our e-newsletters. We have e-newsletters for our various different titles. The Group Travel Leader, our flagship magazine, has an e-newsletter called The Group Travel Minute. It sends twice a month. And if you subscribe at grouptravelleader.com slash subscribe, it's absolutely free. You're going to get all of our content. That means everything that runs in the magazines and those other fantastic articles that we had to cut for space. So I'm going to put that link for you in the show notes. You can subscribe right there. It is quick. It is free. And you are going to get some great content from us twice a month in your email. And uh, we thank you for doing that. Now, it's just about time for us to get into our featured conversation with Eric Wolf. Before we do, though, I want to encourage you hang around through the end of that conversation because at the end i've got a hot minute for you about eating on the road some ways that many group travel planners are i don't know maybe not doing that the best and some better ways that you can go about doing it instead we'll be right back with eric wolf all right so if you're looking for even more reasons to make plans to visit savannah look no further From the moment you arrive, you'll be greeted with moss-draped live oak trees, fresh coastal breezes, and enchanting history around every cobblestone street. Savannah strikes a delicate balance between hip and historic. 
casual but cool, elegant yet approachable. Spend the day exploring the city's illustrious culture, roaming through the green city squares while sipping on your go-to cocktail before hopping a trolley to your next adventure. The best experiences happen when you let Savannah take you along for the ride. You never know what characters you'll meet or what's in store for your next tour. And that's just the way they like it. See why groups of all sizes fall in love with Savannah at visitsavannah.com. All right, everybody. My guest today is a visionary in the food travel trade industry and the founder and executive director of the World Food Travel Association, the world's leading authority on food and beverage tourism. He's also the publisher of Have Fork Will Travel and the author of Culinary Tourism, The Hidden Harvest. He's a highly sought after speaker on food and beverage tourism. Eric Wolf, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Brian. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So everybody has to eat when they travel. And so I feel like many people just take culinary experiences for granted on trips. But uh, you have sort of opened up a whole new way of thinking, maybe a different paradigm of thinking about uh, the role that food plays in the travel experience. So tell us about that. Why is it more than just finding a restaurant to stop at when I um, have an hour of downtime between one attraction and another? That's a great question, and I think you're very astute to pick up on that. When I founded the association 20 years ago, it was pretty much the same situation where many destinations didn't understand how food tourism could be a thing. Mm. You know, we have restaurants and people go out to eat, and and it pretty much solves itself, right? Well, mm-hmm. not really. Uh, the problem is that. We eat three times a day, so eating is ubiquitous for us, and it's a behavior that we can almost do. Our our stomachs tell us when it's time to eat again, so we don't really think that much about uh, the refining the food experience, and that's something that we did at the association over the past 20 years was really to put the spotlight on the, the act of eating and drinking, culinary culture, and so on. So today, we really look at the art of culinary culture and how cuisine can really help people to discover the taste of place, which is how we define culinary tourism today. Mm. Wow. Okay. I need to hear more about that. So give me an example, maybe from your own travels of a way that cuisine has defined what you said, the taste of place. I love that. I love that phrase. Let's unpack it a little bit. Well, taste of place. Yeah. So I'm sure that you have your own favorite travel memories when you've been somewhere and you were walking down a little street at night, perhaps with a romantic partner and you stumble across this little trattoria or something in the harbor and this looks great and you and you decide to go in. And it's that kind of locals only type experience that that you can have, whether it's local food or it's the ambiance. There's actually 13 different kinds of what we call psychoculinary profiles that help to define food lovers and and the kinds of experiences they like. But let's Mm. stick with local and authentic. So that little uh, cafe in the port in Mykonos or a wonderful little pizzeria or pasteria on the streets of Florence or, or Pisa in Italy. Those those are, are experiences that many of us have had, and I've had as well. And and I remember 
uh, gosh, I was in Northern Italy, and this was about 20 years ago before I even founded the association. Slow Food Italy used to have a website where you could go and, and look up slow food certified restaurants. And I went to their website and I found places and you could, you could trust these 100%. And I remember I found a restaurant that they had recommended that was two blocks off from Lake Maggiore in Northern Italy. And all the other tourist places were right on the lake and they, they looked like tourist places, but slow food Italy says, Nope, you have to go two blocks inland and there's this place and they had the little snail on the window mm-hmm. and the food was amazing. Absolutely yeah. amazing. And I'm sure it was much better than I would have got at any of those touristy places. Yeah. So how does a dining experience like that not only um, give you a better meal, but actually connect you more to the place and to the people and to the culture? Well, you think when you're in an experience like that, that you're going to be served by locals, hopefully, right? Mm-hmm. Someone who lives in the local area uh, with the the changes in workforce and immigration immigration and so on some of that's changed a little bit but what's really nice is when you can talk to the server and they can share with you their favorite items on the menu or maybe you get talking about something else like maybe you like bicycling right and they mention a little path that you could take that you weren't aware of so it's it's really i think that's one of the most important things is that dining is interactive it's not just ordering things on a, on a digital screen. And the, with the advent of robots and um, online ordering, uh, or sorry, ordering on screens and stuff right now is, is driving me crazy because that removes the servers from the equation completely. And then all of a sudden you are simply serving food for food's sake and it's not a meal. Uh, it's not a memory, it's a meal. And we like to say that culinary tourism is a, a memory, not a meal. But when you have the robots and the screens involved, it's just a meal, not a memory. Yeah. So speak to the travel planners who maybe put together package tours and are um, planning for groups of 15, 20, 40, 50. Uh, The logistics of that demand uh, certainly more consideration if you're trying to find that awesome local experience. So how do you identify places that can deliver that level of personal interaction and experience, but at the same time, serve a mid to large size group in a way that is um, fast enough and high enough quality. When you talk about that type of experience in the planning process, it's hard. You're walking a, a bit of a fine line because on one hand, you want the local and authentic, but on the other hand, you need something that can accept a group of up to 50 people and has motor coach parking and all of that. And the two are not necessarily compatible. Uh, there's Where I live in Spain, there's a small town that's got a wonderful restaurant off the square, but I don't even know if you could get a, a motor coach to navigate the streets, right? So, so that place is out for any travel planners. Mm. I think that the really the the best and safest approach to this is to work with a local receptive, someone who really knows the areas inside and out, and can help steer you away from tourist traps as well. So, there very well could be places that could accept uh, a van or a motor coach but that are not necessarily the tourist type experiences. Other things that you could do to um, take advantage of those local places would be to schedule dining at times that are not popular with locals. Mm. So in Spain, for example, people start heading out to the restaurants at 9 p.m. Whereas Mm. in most of North America, we'd be heading home by that time. (laughs) So if 
when it, let's say that someone is planning a trip to Spain or Italy, whatever, if you can uh, get them to the restaurant at 6.30 or 7, there's not going to be an issue. There's going to be plenty of parking. There's going to be plenty of seats. As long as they're out of there in two hours, it's all good. And I think that that would be another tip that I would uh, recommend to the travel planners. Now, something that seems to have really emerged in, let's say, the past decade is the idea of a culinary tour as a travel experience uh, in its own. Certainly, there are city tours really all over the globe now that uh, take people to a handful of restaurants or um, you know other places. Tell us about the evolution of that concept and um, where you see it fitting in the travel landscape. Well, when we founded the association back in 2001, I, I had a really hard time identifying any culinary tour operators. There was um, Gourmet on Tour, uh, a woman by the name of Judith who uh, started that company back in the late 1980s and sorry, late 1990s. And her company was Gourmet on Tour. That's the company name. That her company was going strong um, at, in the early days of the of the. Uh, association. But there were really not a lot of local culinary tours out there. Um, there were a couple companies doing wine tours, but it wasn't really a thing. Mm-hmm. Or um, you would go beer tasting, but there weren't really beer tours. Mm-hmm. And the same kind of thing, you might have someone take you uh, on a walking tour of a restaurant district, but it wasn't really with with the goal of experiencing the local cuisine. It was, mm-hmm. It'd be more restaurant hopping. And I think as you started to see more things in the media about cuisine and eating experiences. You saw more food competitions. You saw chef challenges and so on. Those started to make people very sensitive and even um, hyper aware of the eating and drinking experiences. And then you had things like COVID, which which forced people to stay at home to either learn to cook for themselves or to remember how to cook because we're so used to getting takeaway or shopping in grocery stores and just reheating something. And all of this made us really think about the food and how important food is to us. And uh, it's just grown in the past 20 years. And I think people have come to the realization that food itself is extremely important to all of us. So with the advent of, of time and as things passed, more and more companies would open up and, and open the local culinary tours. And I think it's in the United States, it's more of a, a thing, like it's a big thing when someone does a, a local culinary tour in their town. In Europe, it's it's kind of a given. And because people take cuisine a lot more seriously in Europe, and it's such a, an important part of the European culture that it's not as much of a thing. And if you see culinary tours in Europe, they're more for Americans and Canadians and Australians, usually speaking. Yeah. Um, but then you also have companies like Intrepid who have organized multi-day culinary tours. And um, I honestly don't know how successful they've been with that concept. I think that it, the challenge with those multi-day tours is that you can't eat 24 7 Right. So if you have a, a seven-day tour of Oaxaca, Mexico, and you know you have breakfast, and then you need something to digest, you know, time to digest your food before the next meal arrives, so you really need to have the other activities, whether it's it's museums and, and cultures and sightseeing, or it's a sports activity, it could be bicycling, tennis, um, water sports, whatever it is. You need those other activities to balance. And in research that we've done in our association. 
We've discovered that about half of food-loving travelers like recreation experiences and about half like cultural experiences. Mm -hmm. So those are great part, uh, packaging opportunities for tour operators and travel leaders who want to put together programs. Use your own personal love. If you love baseball, right? Well, let's let's um, figure out where the best baseball hot dogs are and, and, yeah. and put that into the program. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've uh, been on many, many, uh, press trips, fam tours, things like that over the years that will have a, an afternoon that is a, you know, a food tour of XYZ city. And, uh, I tend to sign up for those because I'm a, I'm a food lover, but by a couple hours into it, man, I'm just, well, I mean, my stomach is exhausted. It's a, it's a endurance sport and, you know, in the, the food tour tends to end right at dinner time, And then you meet up with everybody else at a restaurant <laughs> <laughs> I know it makes no sense. It makes no sense. It it really doesn't. So uh, tell me in the U.S., these people who have started these these food tour companies, what is that entrepreneur like and what sort of success were they having maybe pre-pandemic? I know the pandemic has changed everything, but how was that industry growing uh, and doing for them? Well, I think the, the industry has been growing extremely well for them. There's a reason why we had almost no culinary tour companies in 2001, and we had over, I think, six or 7,000 in 2019, which was the last time I, I, uh, we, our association measured that. And that's around the world, but still, that, that shows the growth of the industry in, in just two decades. So I think that things were certainly continuing to grow and expand, and you started to see specialist culinary tours emerging. So chocolate lovers, cheese lovers, mm, yeah. vegetarian or vegan tours as well. Those are a thing now. Um, in fact, on our own podcast, I had Bridie Reed, who runs World Vegan Travel, on our show last week, and it's a mm. complete vegan tour company. So that's that's kind of where the industry it, um, was at the 2019 level, and then now post pandemic, you're starting to see some of that pick up where it left off, but you're also seeing new consumer values, which are changing how people are purchasing things, and really it has to do with sustainability. But when I say sustainability, it's not just the environmental factor. It's the, it's the triple bottom line, people, plan a profit. So yeah. sociocultural, economic, as well as the environmental factors. So people concerned that the servers are making a fair living wage. People concerned that their restaurant is not using straws or that they're recycling all of their plastic glass and, and cardboard, those kinds of things. It's a little harder on a package tour to make those kinds of, of decisions when you're booking right. a holiday. However, uh, I don't think that the tour operators should be very surprised if people start asking these questions. And we, we always tend to be way ahead of the curve here at the association. So I, I'm sure there's probably a couple tour operators saying, yeah, that's not going to happen. But mark my words, in two or three years, it will be happening. So what are the questions that uh, a forward-thinking tour operator should be asking uh, of perhaps the restaurant partners they're going to get in involved with, especially for that sustainable and authentic and meaningful culinary experience? How do you ferret that out? Uh, maybe from a, certainly a different state, maybe from a different country and, and what are sort of the um, important signals to look for, or maybe the red flags that you're getting involved with something that may not align with your values? I think that again, working with the local receptive is really, really helpful. And mm -hmm. I can see the eyes rolling. Well, that's going to increase the cost of our packages. We have to build that in. Yeah, you do. But at the same time, your, your tour, your product is going to be that much better because of it. Um, I, I think when people are looking for those partners, you really have to go for transparency. And I would start by looking at the potential partner's website. Do they have any kind of statement about their 
their own commitment to sustainability, whether that is uh, we recycle everything, we, we uh, donate unused food to um, food shelters, homeless shelters, that kind of thing. That, I think, would be an indicator of a potential good partnership. Again, some of these may be smaller businesses that have the time and the wherewithal to, to do these kinds of recycling programs, whether it's waste, food waste or, or other waste. When you start talking about bigger businesses that can accept the uh, motor coach, for example, it's a lot of the tour operators are going to be going for chain type experiences. Mm-hmm. And it is reassuring to see that a lot of the bigger chains have really um, embraced the idea of sustainability uh, and de- diversity, equity, and, and inclusion as well. So about the people, uh, the, the well-being and welfare of, of their workers and so on. So things are changing. Um, I, I, you just have to do your own research. Look for businesses that are transparent where you can document and, and have evidence in hand about uh, their particular business practices. Another thing that the tour planners should be looking for is um, the ease of working with special diets and food allergies, which is a huge thing. And that was uh, increasing tremendously before the pandemic, and it's only continuing to increase now as well. A business needs to be extremely transparent about the what, what kinds of products are it cooks with. Yeah. You don't want to have someone who has a, a, you know, let's say today, oh, we're out of what walnut oil, so I'm going to use peanut oil. Well, then someone's got a peanut allergy and they die. You know, you don't right. want that kind of thing to happen. You right. have to have consistency in it. And if you're out of walnut, walnut oil, then you just can't make that dish, right? You don't substitute an ingredient that you can't, um, that you haven't been able to to give a, uh, advance warning of. So there's a, there's a lot of moving parts in this. And these, these uh, special diets and food allergies aren't going away. And that mm. needs to be something that the travel planners weave into their planning. So you, uh, you mentioned that working with a local receptive is likely to make uh, things more expensive. And when I hear you talk about sustainability, uh, DEI, local sourcing, buzzwords like that in the culinary word, uh, world, all of those buzzwords just kind of flash dollar signs in my mind as well. Like every, every time I hear one of those words, I think, well, they're, you know, price per plate just went up another $5 or $10 just based on, on that concept. So it, Am I right? Am I wrong? Uh, are there places where you can find those sorts of principles in action without it costing $50 a plate, let's say, for dinner in the U.S. somewhere? Well, you're very astute there, Brian. Uh, I would call something like that the sustainability tax. Oh, mm. would you like sustainability with your dinner? Well, that'll be another 25%. <laughs> I would say that if a business is smart and they know what they're doing, it does not have to. Mm. And in fact, I would even argue that by using a food service distributor, you are already increasing your your costs exponentially. I would instead recommend that a business, a restaurant, try to cook everything from scratch. And yes, it's going to require a little bit more labor, but you can do things like you can monitor your own portion control, or you can, you know, you cut the mushrooms up, but then you take the mushroom stems and you make a mushroom soup with them. Mm. You see, so there are ways to use everything in the kitchen, or you're you're peeling the potatoes, you're chopping the carrots, and the pieces that you don't want, you make broths with them. Yeah, stock, right? So there there's ways to do this, and then when you're not throwing away half of your carrot or twenty percent of your potato waste because of bad spots or or the skins, then you are saving money by not having to buy newly made stock from the food service distributor. 
So uh, the world is just completely different now than anything any of us have ever lived through. Um, I see price increases every time I buy lunch or dinner out anywhere. Uh, and we all see uh, restaurants incredibly short-staffed. Uh, really, I mean, the whole world is short-staffed. So how is uh, the rising of prices and uh, the scarcity of labor impacting culinary experiences for travelers in 2022? It is having a tremendous impact, and it's not just the the rising prices and scarcity of labor, but it's also the scarcity of supplies, raw goods. Mm. So the importation of special foodstuffs, like trying to get authentic Parmigiana Reggiano cheese from Italy, you know, it might may be difficult now. It may be uh, a delayed shipment, or the shipments to the food service distributors might be cut in half. All kinds of weird things are happening. Prices are going up, and there's no way around that. And I think what we saw after the pandemic started to abate a little bit, it's like the floodgates open. You know, people mm-hmm. had all this pent up demand. We we have to have to get traveling. I got to get out of here. I've been locked up for two years. All that stuff. I think what you're going to see is after that pent up demand has has been assuaged, you're going to see a little bit of a reality check and people saying, wow, I can't afford to go to Australia anymore, or I can't afford yeah. to go to Thailand anymore, or I, I didn't realize that my hotel in Paris was going to be $700 a night, and it's just a, a basic Hilton, Marriott, whatever, right? Right. So yeah. you stay, yes, $5,000 for your hotel and it's $5,000 for your airfare. And oh, by the way, every person, it's 100 euros ahead just to go out to a restaurant. And yeah, people are going to ha- sit back and say, you know what? I think we're just going to drive somewhere this year. Um, and I think that that this was something that happened a lot during the pandemic was people were getting back to local and also regional exploration. And I think that this has a tremendous opportunity going forward. People uh, are just going to look at the, you know, do I need to spend $20,000, $30,000 to take my family of four to Southeast Asia? Or are we going to spend a third of that and go into the Cascade Mountains, right? Or go to uh, to New England with mm-hmm. a family or something like that and something that's a lot more affordable. Yeah. So definitely there's an area of opportunity here for people maybe in smaller uh, secondary or tertiary destinations. Uh, speak to that person that might be hearing us in uh, you know a small to medium-sized town who says, hey, I know some great restaurants and food entrepreneurs in my own town. Maybe I could start a tour company taking people there. What are their next steps? What should they be pursuing to maybe turn that sort of idea into you know, a workable business? Yeah, um, I think that I, I, I think that's a really good question, but I think you, you can't do everything yourself. And I, I'm mm-hmm. thinking about destinations like Fredericksburg, Texas, or Flagstaff, mm-hmm. Arizona, yeah. uh, places like that, uh, Ashland, Oregon, Burlington, Vermont, uh, these, these smaller kinds of destinations. It is hard to, to build something on your own like that. And I would say to, to look for the local tourism office, if there is one, to try and get support with them. To try Sometimes tourism offices have to be shown the potential. Mm-hmm. That's something that our culinary capitals program does for these smaller destinations that, that maybe had not been on people's radars before. But a lot of times these destinations also don't think they have anything to offer. They, they think, oh, well, no one's going to come to our town. You know, we've only got 3,000 people and, you know, we don't even have a hotel here. So there's no reason to come. Well, yeah, you do because you've got the best peach pie in mm. 500 miles. 
So what are some resources that your organization makes available either to the DMO or to the entrepreneur to uh, help uh, maybe prove the concept or just give them the next steps about how they would find these opportunities in their town and then begin getting it in front of travelers? Yeah, I think that no one should try to to do this on their own. There, there's so many uh, pitfalls that you can fall into and you can spend a lot of time, money and effort and and go nowhere. So why not spend a little bit of time, money or effort to get the training or the resources that you need to save you so much anguish? So for the entrepreneurs, I would point them towards our World Food Travel Academy. We have training and certification programs for culinary tourist guides, culinary tour operators, chefs and food service, as well as destination marketers. So four different programs. Yeah. And for the destinations, um, in addition to the custom research that we do, and we do strategy work as well, but I had mentioned briefly our Culinary Capitals program. It's a new program that is designed to help regenerate tourism and really put the spotlight on those secondary and tertiary destinations that know they've got something fantastic, mm-hmm. but are not really on people's radars right now. So in the midst of, let's say, that destination or that entrepreneur uh, putting these things together, um, what are some ways that they can make sure that they are being inclusive and they are highlighting uh, maybe the minority owned restaurant or food business or, or, or places that uh, may get overlooked if you were just you know going to go down the top 10 greatest hits in your town? How do we make sure we're really um, spreading the wealth? This, this is an excellent question. We had a, um, a destination marketing student in our academy. She was from a town in Arkansas. And she presented her work plan, and it was very much the the top ten, and you could you could tell, and we we talked it through, and they were all um, probably white owned businesses, you know, burger joints, pizza joints, and whatever. And I said, well, you know, you're in Arkansas, you've got some really good Southern food, right? Go, oh yeah, we've got the best Southern food, we've got barbecue and all this stuff. And I said, well, great. Well, um, I'm not seeing that on your list of restaurants, your list of your asset inventory, and so on. And then it was like the light bulb went off and she realized, oh, maybe I shouldn't be just focusing on the places that are popular or the places that I'd like to go, but let's let's look, look bigger. So she started to look at the African-American community there in Arkansas and the influence they made. They have an Asian immigrant population. They have a Mexican immigrant population. And so when we were able to show her to, to look at something in a different light, she was able to go into those communities. And, and it did. she did. She had to go out talk to the people. And I, she told me a story. She went into a little cafe that wasn't in the best part of town. And it was a Southern food cafe. And there was this black dude, uh, has owned it for how, you know, decades. Right. And he's the chef owner. And he looked at her coming in the door and I was kind of like, what the hell are you doing here? And she said, I've heard that you've got the best, whatever, catfish, hush puppies, whatever it was. And that one act of her going in there and saying, I want to learn. I want to know. I am curious. Please tell me your story. And that's those faces behind the places that's so important. So he was a, a an important part of the mosaic of that community. But before, he would have been left out. Yeah. And now, because we put a different uh, filter on how we're looking at the asset inventory and the destination, now those different resources are being looked at. And if we want to look at other types of um, 
groups that have been marginalized in the past, whether they're Native Americans or gay and lesbian or um, immigrants or, or um, female. Uh, there's, there's many different ways to slice and dice it. I would say that it would be very worth your while to talk to, to people who are members of those groups and to get mm. their input. And you don't need to, this doesn't have to be formal market research that you pay tens of thousands of dollars for. It doesn't even necessarily need to be a survey. It's just literally talking to your own network or saying, hey, do you know anybody in the Mexican immigrant community I can interview? Or I don't know any lesbian people. Do you know uh, a lesbian I can ask about the the such and such a scene in my town, right? Mm. Um, and just you know, spreading your wings and, and, and networking, right? And try to interview those people from those different groups and, and get their input. And once you have done that, then I think you, you definitely have something to fall back on and say, well, I did my research, right? But also, um, you have to do it with authenticity and make sure that when you do reach out to those groups, like, like this young woman did at that cafe in her town in Arkansas, where she went in there with a smile on her face and with the absolute genuine interest in the business and the guy could see it right mm -hmm. and that's mm -hmm. what i'm trying to say is that you have to show that genuine interest in these groups and once they can provide their input then you've got all bases covered yeah yeah wonderful eric i could talk with you about this all day uh, i want to let you go but before we do a few last questions where are the best places for people to find you let's say on your podcast on your website and to get involved with uh, all your associations doing yeah, that all they have to do is go to worldfoodtravel.org, which is our main association website. You can mm -hmm. visit the podcast from that page. We have a YouTube channel. You can also go to World Food Travel Academy and uh, go to uh, worldfoodtravelacademy.org uh, for all the training options that we have, or just send us an email, help at worldfoodtravel.org with what you need, and we'll point you in the right direction. Uh, awesome. Well, we have a few final questions we ask everybody, and these are just kind of for fun. So uh, no pressure. You can shoot from the hip. Uh, when you travel, do you like a window seat or an aisle seat? Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. You and me both. Uh, what's something that's always in your carry on that you would never travel without? A uh, wine bottle opener. <laughs> oh, in a carry on. No, no, no. That's in my suitcase, not in a carry on. Um, carry on my tablet. Yeah. So if you had uh, a free airline pass and a week with nothing else to do, where would you be headed next? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> there, you know what, Japan? I would say Japan. It's it's the food fascinates me, and I've watched some videos during the pandemic, and the looking at how they do how they cook their food there versus the Japanese food that we're introduced to, say in the United States, it's not the same. And you have these little tiny eateries that they have in, in the different cities, and and having a local Japanese person who could take me around, speak the language, know the culture, know what I should eat and not eat, and just experience it that way, I would love, I would cherish that kind of a trip. Oh, that sounds fantastic. So final question, uh, what's something you have seen or done on the road that you wish you could experience again with somebody you love? Wow. Um, I guess looking out over in North Vancouver, British Columbia, looking out over the harbor and the city is just a spectacular experience. And this is, so we stopped there on the way up to Whistler and it's just, it, 
all of British Columbia is, is stunning anyway. Yes. Yeah. But just looking out, out over this beautiful harbor, this beautiful landscape, beautiful scenery, the volcanoes in the background, it's just a really, really special place. And if you go up the coast, the, the uh, they've got rainforests and mm-hmm. all kinds of things up by Squamish and then Vancouver Island as well, another fascinating trip. Um, I, I would probably just anywhere in British Columbia just it could be a very romantic experience. Absolutely. I've had some of the best meals of my life in British Columbia. So I'm right there with you. Eric Wolf, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, Brian. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Eric Wolf as much as I did. You know, Eric had lots of great ideas for us there. A few things that I want to hit again, just to make sure you don't miss them. Uh, first off, Eric said culinary tourism is a memory not a meal. And I think that is a great paradigm for us to carry into our travel planning because, well, meals are something that happen every day, but a great trip is full of memories that don't happen every day. And if you want to plan truly great trips, you need to treat those culinary moments as memories and not just meals that are functional and utilitarian, but forgettable. Eric also said that if you're interested in putting together truly authentic and sustainable culinary experiences, it's important to work with a local receptive who knows the area inside and out and can steer you away from tourist traps. I would add to that uh, that working with a local DMO, a CVB, a tourism office can help you accomplish the same things. These are people that know their communities inside and out. They can steer you towards those places that you're not going to find on your own, steer you maybe towards some community favorites, uh, places that are owned by interesting entrepreneurs, people that you might want to support. So you're going to have much more luck by asking smart questions and working with folks like that than you will if you just try to Google around or find a restaurant on your own. Finally, Eric said, when you are trying to find a culinary experience that represents an underrepresented portion of the population, maybe a minority group, maybe people who haven't always had the kinds of business opportunities uh, that uh, more privileged groups have had. He said that uh, faces behind the places are so important and you have to show genuine interest in the people and in what they do in order to get them to open up to show you what they're working on, to bring you into their community and to treat you to a great culinary experience. You know, I think this is something that is important across the board in tourism. It's certainly important in the culinary area because there are entrepreneurs in the culinary space all around the country who didn't go to business school, who didn't grow up privileged, who didn't get venture capital. They didn't have somebody supporting their startup. Uh, They got started uh, from the ground up, pulled themselves up from their bootstraps. They're creating cuisine that reflects their authentic stories and their communities. And man, what an awesome way to get to know a place and especially the stories of people that we don't often hear in those places. Uh, So it's important that we work some of those experiences into the travel product we offer customers. And it's important that we not just take them to eat there, but as Eric said, we introduce them to the faces behind the places so that they can learn the meaningful parts of those stories. Great stuff there from Eric Wolf. And while we're on the subject of eating on the road, can I share with you one of my biggest pet peeves about group tours and the way they do meals? Well, I'm going to do it anyway. That is the topic of today's hot minute. 
That's right. The hot minute is that portion of the show where I take 60 seconds to give you my unfiltered views on an issue impacting tourism every day. Today, the hot minute is all about eating on the road. So let's get into it. All right. I know some of you travel planners love taking your travelers on group tours to buffet restaurants. And all I have to say about that is, well, stop, please, please stop taking people to buffet restaurants. I know you like the time savings because it's quick to get in and out of these places. I know you perceive them as high value, as an economic option that's not going to cost you a lot of money. But here's the problem. Buffet restaurants are not good. I'm going to say it again. Buffet restaurants just aren't serving good food. You can't serve great food in a buffet style. And even if you find a way to make it warm and rather pleasant, well, uh, buffets usually aren't going to offer the kind of authentic and unique cuisine that people really want when they go on a trip. So instead of doing that, why don't you do what Eric said and work with people in the community to find uh, authentic and meaningful and sustainable places your groups can eat. They're going to have better meals, better experiences, and you're going to make a better impact on the places you visit. That's the hot minute. Uh, I hope you agree with me. Even if you disagree, well, you can still be friends with me. That's no problem. And hey, I'd love to hear what you think. You can reach me at podcast at grouptravelleader.com. I read every email that comes into that address and you never know. Your thoughts or questions or comments might just be the topic of the next hot minute. And hey, while you're in the mood to give some feedback, would you do me a favor and go to your podcast player of choice? First of all, subscribe there so that you never miss another episode. Next, leave us a rating, leave us a review. Those really help us in getting the word out about what we're doing here at Gather and Go. And I am so thankful for all of you that do that. My thanks as well to Eric Wolf. On the next episode of Gather and Go, I'm going to bring you a fascinating conversation with Patrick Smith, who is an airline pilot and the writer behind the popular blog, Ask the Pilot. He's going to tell you everything you always wanted to know about air travel. You're not going to want to miss that conversation. In the meantime, remember this. At the end of the day, we are all on this trip together. So let's make it a good one. See you next time on Gather and Go. Gather and Go is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Jewell. Our publisher is Mac Lacey. Donya Simmons is our creative director. Ashley Ricks is our circulation manager and graphic designer. Our sales team is Kyle Anderson and Bryce Wilson. To advertise on the podcast, call Kyle or Bryce at 888-253-0455. Gather and Go is a production of The Group Travel Leader. For more information about our magazines, podcasts, and events, visit us online at grouptravelleader.com. This episode of Gather and Go was sponsored by Visit Savannah. Savannah, Georgia's charm can be found in its rich history, tree-lined cobblestone streets, exciting events, and unbeatable dining experiences. Check out visitsavannah.com to see why your next tour should stop in Savannah.